Thanks to Avast for supporting Future Hindsight. With Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world by helping you stay safe from viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Welcome to Future Hindsight, a podcast that takes big ideas about civic life and democracy and turns them into action items for you and me. I'm Mila Atmos. When I was working on a trading desk in the 90s, I found out that my teammate was making double the pay that I was making. And when I complained, I was told that it was because I was fresh out of college and also because this other guy's wife was about to have their first baby. And I thought, well, that's unfair. But I didn't really know what to do about it, so I didn't do anything about it. And when I looked for a new job, though, I said in my job interview, I know that my teammate is making double what I'm making, and I know that I'm just as good as he is at my job. And I demanded that I get paid at least the same. And it worked. I got paid more in that new job because I had the data, and I was able to use it to get a better deal, to get closer to pay equity, which... Let's face it, as a long way off. Women still only earn 82 cents for every dollar a man earns. And this is kind of the nub of the big idea at the core of today's show. What if we could use data enabled by technology and artificial intelligence to drive more equality? Inequality reaches far beyond the gender pay gap. It's built into so many of the systems governing our daily lives. So how can we engineer those systems toward equality? Orly Lobel sets out a vision for just that in her new book, The Equality Machine, Harnessing Digital Technology for a Brighter, More Inclusive Future. It's out now, published by Public Affairs. Orly Lobel is the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law, the Director of the Center for Employment and Labor Law, and founding member of the Center for Intellectual Property Law and Markets at the University of San Diego. Orly, welcome to Future Hindsight. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mila. Great pleasure to be here. I think people think of artificial intelligence even now in a kind of artificial brain kind of conception, but AI is actually braided into our daily lives. Can you talk about that? Highlight where it's central and we just might not be noticing it or thinking about it. Absolutely. Artificial intelligence and automation in general, digital technology is all around us integrated into every aspect of our work lives, our home lives, and really our intimate relations from the job market all the way to dating and to our family interactions. And, you know, some of it we notice and some of it is more obscure, what kinds of decisions are made about us uh, when we apply to jobs or when we are searching for data, searching for information on the web, or even applying for benefits with government. Yeah, I think one of the things that was like a small example that was in your book is about having a Roomba, you know, which is like your most common robot to own for people. And people don't think that that is an AI device that maps your entire house. And it's sort of, you know, it's a it's a low level appliance is kind of how people think about it. And yet, actually, it's very sophisticated. You know, Roomba is such a 
as you said, kind of a low level sophistication and also by design, you know, it, it's not that Hollywood kind of robot that we envision like a humanoid. And yet people have those ambivalent feelings about integrating a Roomba into their house. There's on the one hand, maybe fear of what you just said about mapping the entire house and you know, what is it collecting about us that it doesn't maybe really need for just vacuuming? But on the other hand, people get very attached to the Roombas. So there's even, you know, some stories about people that don't want to replace the Roomba with a new one if it got smashed or needs fixing, but rather they request the same one because they feel it has become in some way a member of their family. Yes, I thought that was an interesting anecdote in your book. But we're really interested in equality here on the show and civic engagement. And one of my favorite interviews for this show, in fact, we won an award for it, not to brag, was with Shoshana Zuboff about surveillance capitalism. And her argument really is that AI is anti-democratic. And I think your argument kind of builds on that and highlights some specific aspects of the ways in which AI reinforces and amplifies inequality. You know, essentially, we're programming our biases in, and then the biases come back out. So what are some particularly egregious examples of this? So a lot of examples repeat themselves. And that's part of the problem, actually. And there are algorithms that weren't trained well, that received partial data, be it for facial recognition or other kinds of biometric screening for health purposes. So dermatology screening, you know, there's research, if you don't introduce the algorithm to enough data, you have a machine really that's making decisions based on the majority and not taking into account minorities of groups that have less access to digital technology, who have been studied less, um, who have just not been perceived as the prototypical person. So that would always include women. So much of our clinical trials and uh, kind of market design have been catered to men. And so you have a lot of these kind of bias in, bias out. Really everywhere you look, there is that risk. You know, when, when we think about AI and collecting data, so much of us are saying, no, we don't want to give people our data. We want to remain private. We want to protect who we are. But Essentially, your main argument is that it actually needs more data about us in order to make better choices and get to equality. Can you explain a little bit how this would work? Yes, absolutely. So there's this real tension here. And you mentioned uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book, Surveillance Capitalism. It's an important book. Actually, we have the same publisher and we're in agreement in some ways, but in other ways, there's a real tension and conflict and normative choices that we have to make as a society uh, about the kind of data that's protected versus collected. And I've been arguing that this very influential term of surveillance capitalism that has now informed, you know, our cultural debates and our policymaking about how much risk there is, how many dangers and possible harms there are when there's invasion into our private personal spaces, our information, our you know, sensitive data. In what I have seen and research and the kind of tech policy that I do, there's been a cutting off of a lot of potential for 
creating better data to train the algorithms, more information to use with the help of AI to really redistribute a lot of the resources that we have in a society. And so in the book, I give a lot of examples of how there are enclaves or data deserts or people at the edge of data who actually turn out to be the more vulnerable people in our society. And definitely, if you take a, a more global view of this, so it's not just about the United States, but it's really between developed and developing countries. Uh, there's the, a huge problem that so many people around the world really don't have access to the internet, to smartphones, and we're not collecting enough data about them. So in a lot of ways, I think that just having that lens of surveillance capitalism versus understanding that we could have surveillance liberalism or kind of shifting the big brother idea to how about a very friendly, benign and helpful, you know, sister or cousin that makes the right decisions that actually correct for centuries of discrimination and ex exclusion, I think that we really are at a point where we need to have a more balanced debate about how privacy has to be offset by other values and goals that we have in our society. And actually, I loved, Mila, your first story about the gender pay gap. It's also true about racial pay gaps that, you know, we're still in this reality, having had pay equity laws on the books for, for many, many years, we still have significant pay gaps. And so that's actually been something that I've researched quite a bit. I write about it in the book, and I've been also involved in a private industry in tackling it through the help of technology. Yeah, so let's talk about that. How would AI close the gender pay gap? Yeah, so you know, again, it's not AI alone, and it's AI with policy and with concerted efforts and willingness by companies to put in the work. But there is certainly this really frustrating evidence about the stagnating pay gap. And exactly like you described it, Mila, that it's not just in different positions. So definitely we have, you know, occupational segregation, which is another thing that actually automation can help with. And, and it's a different conversation about, you know, what kinds of jobs are going to be replaced and how our human capital can be valued. You know, robots are taking on more of our work. But even if we, when you take, just like your story, the you know, two identically qualified people in the same position, or perhaps the woman is actually doing more, as we tend to see in a lot of organizations, we have these clear pay discrimination realities that are very widespread. And so it's, this has been very frustrating to me as somebody who teaches employment law. I direct the Center for Employment and Labor Policy, and I do a lot of consulting work both to governments and to private industry about it and kind of expert witness in discrimination cases. And just really frustrating about how much human bias we have in pricing. It's so tough for people to really understand how they are making decisions about what they're going to pay their good workers, how they're going to incentivize them, how they're going to reward great performance. Turns out we're really bad at it. And in the equality machine, one of the most important messages that I show throughout the book is that it's not enough to talk about 
an algorithm gone wrong or an AI having the risk of bias. What we need to be talking about is the comparative advantage because we have to recognize and always remind ourselves that the status quo, the human decision maker has a lot of biases. And the questions are, you know, who fares better and what has a better improvement trajectory? What can we detect and how can we make it, you know, de-biased? And with human, it's very, very difficult. So on the salary questions, in my work, I show that, again, what we need is more information. The big problem is that people don't know that they're underpaid. Women don't know their worth. And there's questions about mobility and how much you hop across different jobs, which is kind of exactly like you described. Again, your story is exactly describing the reality is that you can't really fight the organization when you don't have a lot of outside options and you don't get retention deals and renegotiations if you don't have outside recruitment. And so that's one way that now with digital technology and access to so many more job offerings or job offers, job ads, knowledge about where your skill can be best applied. So intermediary platforms like LinkedIn and many others and, and job ads are, are really, again, democratizing our access to, you know, replacing the word of mouth. Um, they are using AI to kind of figure out who they need to send ads to. And again, I know that there's been a lot of, you know, fear about these automated ads that have biases in them. But they are really the drive of moving away from the very narrow job market that we used to see where it was like an all boys club, people would just bring their friends and their close knit family and extended community members. And now we have a global job market. We have through again, technology, the help of remote work. So that's one you know huge driver on just getting the labor market, the job market more competitive and allowing people to kind of find out their worth just through search and knowing more about what their opportunities are. But even more than that, these intermediaries, there's like an app that I described that's called Know Your Worth, where it's really crowdsourcing all the information that people share on the web about what their salaries are and what's comparable. And it's really kind of reversing these years of asymmetric information where employers know all the pay scale and employees don't. And then one step forward, actually, I'm on the board of Pay Equity Alliance with major industry leaders from like NerdWallet to Nordstrom and, and many others. Business is really interested in doing the right thing on pay equity. And because of our limited computation abilities as humans and because of our you know unconscious biases and just kind of the difficulty to see everything that's happening, even when there's a, a real interest, you really need the software for it. And so there's great leaps in the software that is available now for companies to implement and to suddenly see these gaps that were hidden, kind of go beyond job formalities, titles, and look at what are the work products, you know, how people are evaluated and kind of look at, compare across many positions, whether there is gender pay gaps and, and how to correct them. Yeah, you know, I think the big takeaway for me when I read your book is how important it is to have transparency and, and also to have the data 
of the performance and what people are doing with these jobs, because like you said, there was so much informational asymmetry. And I would argue there's also informational asymmetry from the employer, because I think a lot of them just make these like gut decisions. You know, I like this person and uh, I'm going to give this person a raise without actually evaluating whether that person is the better performer than, than the person sitting next door, you know, doing the same job. We are going to take a short break to thank our sponsors. And when we come back, Orly questions the knee-jerk negative coverage of technology and AI and outlines the ways we can repurpose technological tools to protect the vulnerable. But first, thanks Avast for supporting Future Hindsight. Avast is a global leader in cyber protection for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users and prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy, no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. It's their best protection yet, giving you everything you need to take control of your safety and privacy online, and is accessible through a single, easy-to-use interface. Privacy features keep your identity and actions hidden. Security solutions stop malware, phishing, and virus attacks. Performance products clean up and speed up your devices. And VPN allows you to connect safely and securely to public Wi-Fi and conduct your business wherever you want without the fear of cybercrime. And their award-winning antivirus stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. I'm a fan of their data breach monitoring. It enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised and whether you need to change your passwords. Thank you, Avast, for supporting Future Hindsight. Confidently take control of your online world with Avast One. It helps you stay safe from viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cybercrimes. Learn more about Avast One at avast.com. And now... Let's return to my conversation with Orly Lobel. The other thing that I thought was also really interesting was that you stressed over and over again that technology is a tool. And I think so much of how we perceive technology when we think about surveillance capitalism is that we think about it as like this almost another being that has its own life and its own emotions and its own modus that is just not true. And so when you think about making the technology work for us, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when we think about the equality machine? Exactly like you describe it, we need to think about what our goals are, what our social norms are, what our values are in a democratic society. And we need to use technology as a tool to help us fulfill those goals. And with automation, with digital technology, with algorithms making decisions, we have this great thing of having like a digital paper trail where we can have audits and we can have checks on, you know, what are the outputs of what we're using. So 
There's all these examples of AI gone wrong right now that are really kind of shaping our view of where we're at. So one of them is the facial recognition gone wrong. Another one is the Amazon resume parsing tool that they were building. And it turned out that because the algorithm was looking at all the successes in the past, it really prioritized men who played lacrosse or specific male names. But what is not really talked about when this example comes up again and again in the media and kind of the coverage of why we should fear automating job applications and kind of the hiring process, it doesn't come up that this was never actually put into use because Amazon actually saw that this algorithm is not doing the right thing because exactly like you say, it's a tool. It threw away this tool and it's building a better tool. And there are many, many better tools out there these days. And I really see how they're getting much less coverage by the media. If we move from jobs to, let's say, health, there's been also, you know, coverage of, well, there's been some automation of radiology screening, but maybe two human radiologists do better than this radiologist uh, that is an AI. Well, you know, when we look at actually the, um, the improvements that can be made and more data, as we discussed, that makes the AI better, we actually get stronger and stronger. And, you know, we have to update. We have to forget the, the failed one that really is not relevant anymore. So that's really kind of the, the bigger lens and framework. We're racing forward with integrating technology into our lives. So if we don't ask the right questions and we don't try to find the best practices then we're going to be in a reality where, you know, the metaverse is coming and where we all have avatars and we all have digital personal assistance in our homes and we have smart refrigerators and whatever it will be, you know, autonomous vehicles will have all of these. But we wouldn't have asked and directed the technology in ways that create more safety for people who are more vulnerable. The other thing is that you ask, you know, how do we use this tool? Again, we have to be frank about how there's going to be, just like there always were, some trade-offs. So we talked about privacy versus getting full information and equality, uh, but there's other trade-offs. We, we might want more security and safety versus more speech that's kind of unmoderated, you know, public health. So the AI won't solve those kinds of questions. Like, do we remove false information in order to create more public health during a global pandemic? That's something that as a society, we'll always have to make these decisions between trade-offs. But the AI can help us really achieve the goals that we've always had. Right. Well, speaking of trade-offs, I was kind of surprised to read that you see data collection and facial recognition as a public good. Why is that? The thing that we need to understand is that when we have more information, we can solve many more problems around the world. With facial recognition, for example, there's a lot of fear with using biometrics, like what do people know about us? What does the government know about us? But the question that we need to ask is the more substantive question of what are our democracies like? You know, what, what are we using information that we have for? And so, you know, again, it won't solve this, but we have to also understand beyond the possible 
harms and we have to articulate them. We, we can't have these overarching, uh, unarticulated possible harms of like, what can somebody do because they know my face? There are many medical uses right now for facial recognition, for helping people in remote locations around the world that don't have access to regular medicine, to doctors. There, there are amazing scientists. So like I was just at Tel Aviv University and there's this scientist that's developing an early detection and treatment for people just through facial recognition technology that will help parents kind of know about propensities to diseases and help provide for their kids. That's enormously democratizing, that kind of remote health. With law enforcement, I think the thing that people fear most with facial recognition, like you know, people will know my face and there's going to be law enforcement and law enforcement can go wrong, as we know. So again, we need to articulate what we're afraid of. Are we afraid of the false positives? Are we afraid of inaccuracies? Or are we afraid of too much accuracy, (laughs) too much, you know, exactly correct detection of crime? And I think there are risks on both sides, but certainly right now, and again, I don't think it's talked about enough in the media when we talk about facial recognition and there's all these policies in the EU and around the country like Illinois and before Congress to ban facial recognition and most uses. It's not talked about that facial recognition is really a game changer in trafficking. So really finding missing children who have been trafficked, pairing facial recognition with AI that can re-image someone from when they were lost, like at the age of eight to four years later as as a, a child of 12 years old. So it's a hugely beneficial tool for these kinds of very important law enforcement. So, you know, I think that thinking in these binary ways of banning versus, you know, free for all, using it for evil, is just simply not the right conversation that we need to have. We need to think about it as a public good, as you said, and think about the positive uses rather than, you know, saying, oh, we have this technology, but we're not going to use it. Right. Yeah. I think that was actually one of the most striking examples in your book about the facial recognition, being able to recognize a child that was trafficked years before that a human couldn't recognize because she had grown older or she was wearing makeup and it was, you know, not the same to the naked eye, but the AI could identify her. So we're going to veer back into the Future Hindsight Lane, which is about civic engagement and uh, civil society, we talked to lots of citizen change makers, as we call them, and I know they listen, so this is for them. How can activists use technology and AI to further their causes? Well, first of all, so important for me, and this is why I wrote The Equality Machine, is first of all to have skin in the game and be in the inside, if you will. So I think that just being from the outside and criticizing and raising the concerns and the fears that we've talked about is not really going to do the work. So there are a lot of positive nonprofits right now that are looking at AI for good. There are a lot of in, in private industry you know, departments that are about ethics in AI, algorithmic accountability, algorithmic equality. And those 
positions need to be diverse. Uh, they need to be diverse both on kind of our identity composition, but also they need to be interdisciplinary. So activists uh, with backgrounds that are not in computer science, but in social work and sociology and psychology and behavioral economics from really every uh, field and place. We need to have these conversations and engagement and have a vision of, you know, how do we use these tools, repurpose them for the goals that we have. And there's so many examples. Again, I don't think that they're covered enough, but if you're working in the area of environmental protection and climate change, if you're working on poverty alleviation and education and literacy, if you're working in the field of public health and access and accessibility and disability rights or on, you know, workplace and labor organization, the tools are out there and we need to really kind of grab them, be in the conversation, have skin in the game and have also the kind of positive constructive vision. That's really just the primary goal of writing the equality machine of kind of shifting the conversation to the next steps and being constructive about it. So what you're saying is really that we need to have humans actively shaping what we're putting in in order to get the results we want. But we also know that sometimes this technology is being abused, misused, in fact, to terrorize other humans, right? Whether that's, you know, one of the examples that you had is that uh, you could use your own security cameras at home to abuse your spouse. And so what's the what's the line here? How can we actually do this successfully in a way that really tamps down one and, and elevates the other? Right. And there's no magic formula. You know, we're this is our reality. So, you know, we're we're technology has both sides of the the coin of for positive change and, and also in the hands of the wrong purposes, they can be abused. The example that you described with people um, finding themselves kind of trapped in their own homes with a surveillance that's used by an abusive spouse. There's lots of examples that uh, I describe in the book where actually with the help of law enforcement and nonprofits, technology can actually predict better and help women and, and other people who are experiencing abuse to actually get out of these kinds of relationships. Um, so again, it's, it's a more balanced story. Competition. So definitely competition in what's offered in the market and, you know, kind of more consumer choice and more consumer input is key. So there's very important work that's being done right now by government. I'm, you know, I'm part of that conversation about antitrust and competition policy and, you know, looking at big tech and whether we have enough access to build the tools um, with thinking about nonprofits also using these tools, also having access to the data. But the, the most important thing for us as a society to have a focus on digital literacy and to educate and to give access to people who have been traditionally like disempowered. So let's say in, in a reality of domestic abuse, uh, where there's starting to be automation, but the person who's controlling the automation is the abuser. If we think about this seriously of from an early age, making people not afraid of AI, but actually I use that word skin in the game, you know, from a young age, teaching 
young girls and young boys to, to use technology, to code, to even if they're not, you know, in that field of coding, to know what to look for, to know what to ask for, and to demystify, you know, the whole kind of interaction, human machine interactions. I think that we will see a lot of progress on that front. I mean, activists, and, and again, these are your listeners, these wonderful activists who are changing the world, they know how much technology has helped organize more than ever before. If you think about hashtags like the Me Too movement and Black, Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the scale of activism has just changed dramatically as we've become more comfortable using our digital connectivity. And so we need to kind of move forward with that and have this kind of cautiously optimistic stance, which I advocate in the book. I have a question that circles back to the HR question and pay equity, because one of the things that you also mentioned in the book is that, you know, you could find out people who are potentially abusive at work. I was thinking about this just now with the abusive spouse and how you could, you know, gather all this data, whether there are people who are toxic at work or harass other people at work and how gathering more data can potentially expose someone like that, but it could also inadvertently give you a false positive. So what is too much information and what is just right? Or is there such a thing? And how do you think about that? Yeah. So with technology, you can move forward with less false positive when you have these digital trails. So with harassment at work, I describe a slew of um, startups, new apps that are serving employers, companies, and employees to really track and trace and collect and, and keep a trail about what interactions look like. And then, you know, you, you will have to have some judgment calls. In the end, the kind of he said, she said, not believing the victim, not remembering, not seeing the patterns of repeat abusers, all of this can become something of the past. Um, so I actually just emailed like five minutes before we started our podcast, um, Gretchen Carlson, who was, of course, the Fox newscaster, who was very important in, in exposing the Fox sexual harassment, Me Too environment. But she and I also co-authored recently a day one report for the Biden administration about NDAs and how they're serving to hide a lot of information about what's happening in corporate culture. And again, it's not just about sexual harassment, it's about discrimination at large, including pay inequities, but also it's about all sorts of improprieties, you know, anything that would be a subject to whistleblowing. And what technology is doing, what I describe with these new apps and these new ways of keeping digital records, but keeping them protected. Of course, we need, you know, cybersecurity and there's lots of tools of anonymizing and um, keeping sensitive information from being misused. What, what it does really is it creates more confidence for people to speak up. It really kind of solves this game theory that we're in where, you know, one person in an abusive environment will oftentimes be too afraid of being the one person who goes against the Goliath. And nobody wants to be the David that will be fired like as a whistleblower. But when we have these third-party providers uh, like these apps that allow you to submit grievances 
in anonymized ways and to kind of have like, it's like a notary that is with you your whole career. You know, you're kind of keeping these notebooks about what's happening. I think that there's so much more potential to really expose the things that are wrong and and prove that the things that are the false positives that you asked about are, are just false. So I think we actually need to fear less of the false positives under this kind of environment. Right. So as an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to demand that the algorithms, that the technology be used for equality? Yeah, so digital literacy, really feeling comfortable with what is an algorithm. You know, it's it's just a formula that's trained by data. In the book, I in the equality machine, I really try to simplify a lot of these terms that sometimes seem scary to everyday citizens, like what is deep learning and neural networks and machine learning. And it's really, you know, things that we can all understand, even if we don't understand, you know, how how exactly they like the inner workings or, or how to program them. So so educating and having a balanced conversation. Again, not allowing sensationalist reporting about how we're all going to be tracked and traced and, you know, no more privacy and no more human decision making and, and being smart about differentiating between fact and fiction, between Hollywood depictions and what are the realities. And then understanding that even, you know, when there are failures, if we ask the right questions, there can be efforts to reform and to get better. Excellent. So as we are closing in towards the end Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? My daughters are um, now getting older. And so I have one daughter who is an AI researcher at Stanford. She's a college student at Stanford doing symbolic systems and computer science and AI and neuroscience and economics. And the other one is studying cyber security and cyber operations and intelligence at USC And then I have one in middle school, but this generation, so my daughters, my students, I think there's, you know, there's much less of a fear of technology in their lives and in their realities. That really makes me hopeful. I think that, for example, with autonomous vehicles, they get it. Like they get that we will be at a time where they will be safer than human drivers And I see a lot of people and kind of my colleagues and, you know, reporters that are terrified of this and reporting about, you know, an accident that happened with Waymo or Uber and, and kind of having a conclusion <laughs> from that, that we're not, you know, we're not going to get there. We're not going to have safe autonomous vehicles. I think uh, there is a lot of you know, kind of positive energy in the generation that we're training now that I'm teaching that I see are doing amazing things and are doing the, you know, cause lawyering or, you know, public organizing, the, the for-profit. So I see a lot of things to be hopeful about. And now we just need to really <laughs> tackle the the very wicked problems that we have in our society. And our work is cut out for us. It is, it is. But it, it is hopeful that young people are, 
uh, jumping in and really putting their skin in the game, as you have mentioned earlier. And I think you're right, it bodes well that the more young people are in it to form the future of this technology, the better. Well, thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. It was really a pleasure to have you on. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Mila. It was great. Orly Lobel is the Warren Distinguished Professor of Law, the Director of the Center for Employment and Labor Law, and founding member of the Center for Intellectual Property Law and Markets at the University of San Diego. Next week on Future Hindsight, an energizing and inspiring conversation ahead of the midterms. I'll be joined by Amanda Brown-Learman. She's the executive director at Supermajority and Supermajority Education Fund, which build women's political power through efforts to inform, train, and organize women across age, race, and background. Fundamentally, women believe that our lives should be safe, our bodies should be respected, our work should be valued, our family should be supported, and that our government should represent us. And those very basic value propositions are what women hold hope for and what women are fighting for. Amanda's full of ideas and encouragement for getting out the vote and engaging in your community as we enter the final days of incredibly consequential elections for state houses, state attorneys general, congressional elections, gubernatorial elections, school boards, the list goes on. It's a lot. You won't want to miss it. That's next time on Future Hindsight. We're also active on Twitter and would love to engage with you all there. You can follow me at Mila Atmos, that's one word, M-I-L-A-A-T-M-O-S, or follow the pod at F-U-T-U-R underscore hindsight. This episode was produced by Zach Travis and Sarah Burningham. Until next time, stay engaged. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.